Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Case Podcast. This is Joy Clark. Um, and today I am at the Euro Closure and I have a guest, Alex Miller, who is working on Closure at Cognitech and is also the author of Closure Applied. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, you're welcome. So we're at the Euro Closure this week and um, it's a closure conference. So can you tell us a little bit about what Closure is? Sure. It's a, a functional dynamic language uh, that runs on the Java virtual machine. And then there's also a, a version called Closure Script that targets, uh, that transpiles to JavaScript and runs on JavaScript engines instead. So, so what does it roughly look like? Uh, so it is a Lisp dialect. And so it looks like um, things like Lisp or Scheme or Racket. Um, and that means uh, most people, their familiarity with that is it's a lot of parentheses. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that uh, 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 is most, most closure developers describe uh, a sense of uh, stop, that they stop seeing those after a while. Uh, and you start thinking instead in the structure of your code because it sort of makes the structure of your code um, sort of lays that bare. Mm -hmm. And so um, I find that's a very natural way for me to think about it. And in closure, everything is an expression and every expression is surrounded by uh, parentheses. So mm -hmm. it's a very regular structure. Um, so do you still see the parentheses? Or do you kind of filter them out now? I, I mean, I, I'm really, I see them, but I, you know, I'm really thinking in terms of expressions. And so okay. I, I think that's what, what people mean when they say that is that you stop sort of thinking in terms of um, syntax and it's really, you're thinking more in the structure of the code instead. Mm -hmm. So how does it differ from like more mainstream programming languages? Uh, I mean, in some sense, it's it's similar um, to other mainstream programming languages. It has all the same kinds of things that you have in uh, other languages, like you know, like the ability to um, do conditionals and and looping constructs and things like that. So, in function invocation, all those things are uh, things that exist in Closure as well. Um, it's a dynamic language, so uh, it has some similarities to other dynamic languages like uh, Ruby or or Python or even JavaScript uh, in that sense. Um, it's a uh, functional language, so it has definitely an orientation around functions, uh, and that's you know similar to uh, other functional languages, things like you know OCaml or Haskell or uh, Scala or something like that. So it has some you know similarities to a, a number of different languages. Um, one of the sort of the, a couple of the sort of identifying characteristics of, of Clojure are definitely that uh, from the very beginning, it's had a focus on um, working with immutable values mm -hmm. as, the da as data. Uh, and many people describe that as sort of, the, um, uh, sort of the key thing that they enjoy in Clojure. And that's, um, it underlies a lot of the other things that, that you have in Clojure, like the concurrency constructs and state constructs and things like that. They all really rely on are based on uh, this dealing with immutable data. Mm -hmm. so. so what's the, like, um, what's the strength of Clojure? What, what types of problems is Clojure particularly good at solving? So Clojure was designed by Rich Hickey and, and he had done a lot of work in um, C++ and C Sharp and Java and Common Lisp and things like that. And, and uh, part of the rationale for Clojure was really um, to be good in the kinds of applications where Java is good for applications. Um, 
And Java, of course, is used in a, a very wide variety of scenarios. And I think Clojure can also be used in a very wide, wide set of places. Um, not all of those are, are the perfect fit for Clojure. Uh, so there's definitely places where like uh, embedded code or, um, you, you know, different, more specialized things, but sort of just generic business applications and things like that is where uh, I think Clojure it, it provides a really, um, uh, really hits a sweet spot for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's what people are using it for mostly. Mostly, so. mostly like web applications or yeah, well, I mean, kind of applications. Most applications are web applications that's, these days. That's so true. that's, <laughs> that's inevitable. And when we do surveys and things like that, we see, you know, 80% of the people or something are doing web applications and, those tend to be in areas like um, uh, e-commerce and um, travel apps and financial apps and just all mm -hmm. sort of typical business enterprise uh, type applications. And there's a, a lot of different companies using it, uh, you know, insurance, travel, all those kinds of domains. There's a lot of big companies that people have heard of that are using Clojure for those kinds of things. Can you use it for mobile development as well? Uh, you can. And so, um, there, so probably the leading contender right now for that sort of thing is to use react native, um, and closure script. That's probably mm -hmm. the, um, probably the easiest path right now to cross platform mobile development and things like that. Um, it, because closure runs on the JVM and, and the Android runs, um, Java classes or compiled Java classes to, the Android engine, um, it is possible to do that. Um, there are various technical reasons why uh, that's not the fastest thing to do. And so mm -hmm. that hasn't been too well supported in the last few years. Uh, and so most people that are doing development are using uh, React Native as far as I know. Okay. Um, um, yeah, Clojure is personally my favorite language. Uh, and I get a lot of like comment. I think it's interesting, like from the Haskell and Scala communities, you would think mm -hmm. that they'd be like, Oh, another functional programming mm -hmm. language. Welcome to the club. But then they're always like, where's the types. Um, mm -hmm. and I, and I, I always really, I get a, a bit apologetic about it maybe, but I, I kind of never know what to say to someone who's like, I really want to strongly type language. I can see where they come from. Like mm -hmm. why compile, like if the compiler helps me program a, like something that's better, um, but I never really know what to have to say because I never miss types. Um, right. is, can you like maybe elaborate uh -huh. on the, the benefits of dynamically typed languages? Yeah. Um, and I, I've spent, um, more of my career working with statically typed languages than working with dynamically typed languages. So <laughs> I have a, a lot of experience in both and, and, um, a lot, of, I think it's, uh, pretty easy to sort of talk about the benefits of statically typed languages. Um, in terms of enforcement and, and things like that. Um, I, I think that not people don't talk very often about the, the costs of dynamic languages in terms mm -hmm. of, I, I mean, static type languages in terms of um, the um, things that they put in your way in terms of flexibility of uh, growth of a code base over time and things like that. And you'll find that like most large statically typed applications have portions of the application that are actually effectively dynamically typed. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're, you know, you might be shoving that stuff in a map or something like that mm -hmm. um, to get around that. 
Um, but you'll find that there are often parts of a statically typed language that uh, end up needing to be a little bit more flexible and that you expect to change more frequently over time and things like that. Um, so you can sort of turn those things around and say, instead, why don't we start from that perspective and have that flexibility all the time, but then allow us to add additional validation or, or checks or things like that at the places where it's important um, to sort of get the get those benefits um, of statically typed languages. And I think Clojure has um, found a, a path that, that makes it really easy to um, sort of uh, rapidly build up applications, build functionality, and do those kinds of things. And we're starting to add some additional features in the latest version of Clojure with mm -hmm. um, Clojure Spec that uh, give you additional things that you would want, and you know, maybe coming from a statically typed language or something like that. Um, Can you like explain a little bit about what spec is? Sure. Um, so like I was saying, like um, in, in Clojure, you really have a, a small number of um, core data structures that compose together to let you build all of your data together. So you have um, lists, vec vectors, maps, and sets. And those are the primary data structures. And, and actually, um, the majority, uh, in practice, the majority of your data ends up in maps and uh, vectors usually. And so mm -hmm. um, you're really using primarily two data structures to model all of your data. Um, the big benefit for that is that you can do generic programming. You really um, can use, uh, we have this large library of functions um, that allow us to generically operate over um, different collection types. Um, so, and this is all just standard functional programming stuff, uh, being able to map and filter and replace and all these sorts of things. And, and uh, so Clojure has this really well-developed library that works on generic data structures. Um, the, um, and the benefits that you get from that are tremendous reuse. You're, mm -hmm. you're always using this small number of data structures everywhere use it to represent everything your configuration data your data coming from your database your data coming from the user over the wire all those things end up being just this small number of data structures um so the thing that i always felt like i was promised in object-oriented languages like java was this you know oh you're going to be able to make these objects and then reuse them but in practice what i always found was that you were making these very bespoke custom objects mm -hmm. um, that i couldn't reuse at all and so you rarely got any reuse out of them um, so I feel like I get like a tremendous amount of reuse out of the small number of data structures that Clojure provides and that the library it provides to work on them. Um, the flip side of that though, is that uh, what that means when you look at a function that operates on your customer data, your customer data is just represented as a map. Mm -hmm. Whereas in like an object oriented or statically typed language, you might actually have a customer object or a customer type of some kind. And so you've actually have lost some of the concrete details about what's happening. They're no longer as visible in your code instead of being annotations and on your functions and things like that. They're sort of implicit in the structure of the data. Okay. And so Clojure Spec gives us tools to actually um, continue programming in the same generic way that we have been, um, but add additionally the ability to annotate that data and say, oh, this map is actually not just a map, it's actually conforms to a customer specification and it has these attributes mm -hmm. and these attributes have their own, you know, nested, um, format. And once we have that, we have the ability to talk precisely about data structures, uh, in, in concrete terms that are useful to a, 
the programmer mm-hmm. um, as they're communicating things, and then also be able to do things like validate that data, um, check whether uh, if if it's invalid, tell us things about the way that it's invalid, and so uh, you can you know get re- um, explanations of invalid data. And then it also has built into it the ability to generate example data that uh, conforms to the specification. And so you can actually do generative testing where you, you know, generate random customers and you can then inject them into a function and verify that it actually does things you say it does. And so uh, that actually goes way beyond what most people get out of statically typed languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really an exciting addition to Clojure to have that new functionality in there. How easy is it to get started with spec? Uh, I think it's very easy. I mean, there, there are definitely some things you need to learn in terms of um, the different spec forms and mm-hmm. uh, ways that you can specify um, specs for um, uh, compose specs together, basically. Specs are inherently made of predicates. And so predicates are just functions that have the ability to take a value and tell you something logically true or false about it. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this number odd? Is this um, string empty? Things like that. So those are example predicates. And then we have a bunch of a family of composites that can combine those things together in terms of logically anding and ordering them or talking about uh, collections of predicates and things like that. Um, so once you, yeah, you often already have the predicates there to mm-hmm. exist in your program uh, because you need them for the actual program code. And then it's just a matter of learning these the set of forms that you can use to combine them together. So. Um, in my experience, like it's it's very easy to like write a closure program, mm-hmm. um, but how easy is it to maintain the code? Um, it's like you just write it down and then it works. But then, <laughs> um, I guess with the, with the dynamicness of the language, maybe spec helps a bit. But then you might forget what a function does mm-hmm. if it's not well documented. Um, yeah. Um, so I think spec is really stepping in there to um, have the ability to put language around um, what um, the m- more precise specifications for how, what data is flowing in and out of your system. Um, and so that's that's a big new tool that we have. And, and it also includes the ability to include instrumentation. And so you can instrument a function and then get uh, immediate feedback if you invoke it with an invalid value. Um, what does instrumenting mean? Sorry. So instrumenting <laughs> means that we basically take a function that exists and you wrap a little function layer around it mm-hmm. that checks the input values um, to verify that they conform to the spec for that function. Okay. And so you can, uh, anytime you, so during development, you will turn on these things and they, and they have some cost because you're basically mm-hmm. wrapping every function in another function. So, um, but every time you invoke a function, you'll, you're getting these extra checks. And at development time, I found it to be really a transformative thing. Um, really, it really gives you much better feedback, much faster than you uh, got before. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is that the way that most um, closure developers work is with a very close sort of integration with uh, a REPL, uh, which is a read eval print loop. And that's sort mm-hmm. of actually, um, a lot of different languages have some sort of a, uh, interpreter that you can run and, and, and run, uh, you know, commands or expressions in the language and see the results, um, for, for any Lisp that it's, that's really not an interpreter. That's really actually the heart of 
what running a, a Lisp-like program is. It's really this notion of just reading a form, evaluating it, and then you know printing the result or you know reading the next form and <laughs> doing more work. And so um, it's really uh, what I call the sort of the beating heart of Lisp. So mm -hmm. and that's just given to you directly, and you you can work with it. And so most people work in an editor, but then they're able to send um, uh, a, a particular form a parenthesized expression in their mm -hmm. editor over to the REPL and evaluate it. And you sort of build up this state and you're sort of working with the REPL back and forth in terms of um, you're building up a function and then you're evaluating that function and then you're, uh, you know, creating data and, and inserting that data and in, in invoking the function with the data. Uh, and that gives you this sort of very rapid feedback cycle um, to sort of understand what your program is doing. And I think the question you asked is really like, how does that work over time? And um, some of it is just typical, just being a good, doing good diligence on, you mm -hmm. know, documenting what your code does and um, providing enough hooks so that when the next person comes along, it's easy for them to sort of pick up the strands and, and mm -hmm. build up a state that puts them back in that REPL workflow. Um, so uh, that, that does need to, you do need to take some care there. And I think there's, uh, a lot of sort of best practices around the way that you manage your code in terms of uh, typically name code is in functions and the functions are collected in namespaces. The namespaces are often sort of organized around data structures. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of times you'll see at the bottom of a namespace, a comment block that has example data structures in it and example code and things that will, that you can go directly there and start evaluating some things and give yourself mm -hmm. some state to work with the functions in that namespace. So what's the um, documentation like? So uh, it's terse. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, the, the actual closure API docs itself are, um, are, are intentionally terse, um, partly because that documentation gets compiled into the final classes mm -hmm. uh, typically. And that means that you can at a REPL, ask for the documentation for a function, and it can show you that. If it's available, you it can also show you you know the the actual source of the function itself. And I'd say that Enclosure probably more so than in most other languages. I find myself looking at the source of the functions I'm invoking mm -hmm. uh, or the the functions in the core library um, more frequently. And that's just I think just sort of the nature of um, mm -hmm. Closure and Lisp and things like that is that you tend to uh, just do more of that sort of investigation at the REPL yeah. naturally. Um, yeah, I actually read closure source code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never read Java source code. Um, uh, so would you say like, as a rule of thumb, is closure easier like to maintain than a language like say Java or less easy to maintain? Well, I, mean, I think you have the same exact problems you have in any other language in terms of uh, and the problems that are problems in other languages are problems in closure too. It's this notion of um, you're building a large set of, you know, abstractions and in concrete implementation details and things like that. And um, you need to be able to walk up to the system and understand what it's doing. And so um, it, in like my, the, the bulk of my career has been working in Java and um, when you walk up to a Java system, you're necessarily going to find a lot of classes. Those classes will have Java doc and you'll mm -hmm. uh, be able to start 
looking at those things. And it's the exact same thing they'll for hopefully closure. Hopefully have Javadoc. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully you'll have Javadoc for at least the things that you care about. And the same is true of closure. You want to look for doc strings and things like that. Um, the big difference in from what I see is that with closure, um, you typically are looking at anywhere from 10 or 100 times more concise code. Um, and so that typically means that you have to read a lot smaller a smaller number of lines to actually get sort of the same conceptual unit that you do in Java. And um, that's something that's easier to sort of uh, explain away as not important. Um, in my experience, it is important. Like it being able to find that the implementation of something all exists in one file and that file is 50 lines long. Mm -hmm. um, that gives me a lot of uh, a much narrower focus on what to look at. Uh, and what I can see at a time on a screen, mm -hmm. uh, you can just fit an enormous amount of code on, you know, more amount of um, value onto one screen. And so I find that to be um, really valuable. Uh, yeah. So like, but it's, so you have a little program um, and you can see it and, but like for a bigger application, you probably need more than one file, right? Yes. Absolutely. So um, do you have any tips on like, is there are, are there architectural patterns or something that have kind of become standard or an opinion or something to help structure your application? Mm -hmm. This is a really common question, especially for new closure developers. Um, generally, I find um, I, I generally don't actually find it that hard to do that sort of stuff myself. And so that's a thing that I've thought about a lot, um, trying to sort of just mentally piece through like why like wh what do i when do i make the decision of how to split things apart and it it's really the same kinds of decisions i make in other languages is um a lot of times in like java you have a class that's really you're orienting a file is really about a class and that class is about you know representing something um and similarly in closure you're going to have a file which is a namespace and it's typically going to be things that are about um sort of one data structure or one small collection of data structures that are important. So you might have a collection of functions that are about a, a function or something like or about a customer or something like that. Or you might have a set of functions that provide some functionality, some particular handler in a web app or, or mm -hmm. something like that. And it's really one of those things that as you work on enough closure code, you sort of get to that point where you get that you get that sort of uneasy feeling like there's getting to be too much stuff in this file. Like I need to impose some more structure on it. Uh, and I've done some analysis on different, on larger code bases um, to look at that. And generally I, it, it seems like um, that limit, at least for me personally, is somewhere in the 200 to 500 lines of code range. Mm -hmm. Like that's where I start feeling uneasy. And that's actually pretty small compared to other languages. Um, but that's you mean a, like as as the whole program or just one file? In a file. So that's like once file. like I find that when stuff gets to be over about 500 lines of closure, then typically there's some logical structure. Mm -hmm. There's some logical divisions in there that will then lead me to break that out into multiple namespaces or things like that. So do you usually like put everything in one namespace and then like later extracted into other namespaces mostly and so i mean i think there are definitely times when i start working on something where i know that there's like independent things that i want to make that i know are going to evolve at different rates or they're about mm -hmm. different things and i'll just naturally um, start by putting those in in different files but 
if I'm not sure, if I'm like really just sort of starting and working through it, I'll just put everything in one file. And at some point, like there will logically, it, this, the structure will start to emerge and, and uh, I'll find that in the file itself, I've segmented and written a comment line that says now, you know, this is now mm -hmm. stuff about this. And those eventually become really distinct units. And at some point I just take that chunk of code and move it into another namespace um, and expand out from there. Um, What's the largest code base you've worked on in Clojure? Well, Clojure itself, Clojure Core itself oh, is true. one gigantic so file. it's written in Clojure. Uh, well, most of, uh, it's a mixture of Java and Clojure. And, and so um, a lot of the data structures and some of the concurrency primitives and things like mm -hmm. that are written in Java. Um, and the compiler, of course, the compiler is one giant file. Um, but the Clojure Core Library is, um, uh, the actual core library itself is actually split. Uh, it's actually one namespace split across a number of files, but uh, those, some of those are the, the main core one is, is pretty large and it's, it's unwieldy. I mean, it's actually mm -hmm. painfully large, but um, there are reasons why it is the way it is. And so I never uh, thought about how big that file must be. <laughs> it's thousands <laughs> of lines. So it's, yeah. it's a lot of stuff to look through. It's a, mm -hmm. it's definitely one of those things where you can load it in a typical closure editor to test how well it handles large files. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so those um, are like all of the normal functions that you would want to use map reduce. Right. All the, yeah, all the core, most of the core library is in. How many functions are there in, in the core library? There are roughly? about seven or 800, something like that. Wow. So but most of those are two lines. I mean, most of them are yeah. tiny functions. Uh, and then there are other, um, it is actually split across multiple files for, uh, there are ways to split a namespace across multiple files. And so there are chunks of it for things like the parts that define protocols and data types and mm -hmm. that, that's pushed off in another file and some of the uh, pretty the printing parts pretty printing mm -hmm. and some of those are pushed off in separate files as well so, so um how popular is closure um it's uh, it's a little hard to get hard numbers on any of that thing but i i can pretty safely say that there are tens of thousands of closure developers out there in the world and um it's being used at at uh, hundreds or thousands of companies, many of which are you know sort of Fortune 500 type companies. And um, we at Cognitech work with uh, people at um, some of these big companies, and and uh, some of them are not uh, are still a little circumspect about saying publicly that they use Closure. Um, so there are definitely more companies using it than are talking about it. Um, but it's always interesting coming to a conference. Is it something to be ashamed of? I think, well, <laughs> some people use it as sort of a, as sort of a strategic advantage. And so, um, okay. they don't want to talk about it too much. And some companies are just naturally more stealthy about what they're doing internally. So, um, and they, they don't want to be known for their tech as much as they want to be known for their product. So, uh, they just don't talk about it quite as much. And sometimes, sometimes we're able to convince them to go do a talk at a conference and sometimes they're not. So. Um, but it's, it's being used in all sorts of big companies all over the place. And so what's tooling like, uh, there's a lot of tooling. And so it used to be back when I started that, that was like one of the number one complaints is tooling and, and people still complain about it because people always want better tools. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are, uh, fantastic tools available. Um, there, as far as editors go, uh, probably the two, um, leading ones that most people use are either uh, Emacs, which is the sort of uh, the yeah, 
programmers, program, programmers, editor of old. Um, and that's still probably the most common one that you'll see in the closure community. Um, IntelliJ, uh, there's an IntelliJ plugin called cursive. That's a commercial and plugin, um, that's developed by Colin Fleming. And that's, um, that's also really good. I actually use both Emacs and cursive for different situations. Um, and then there are, you know, Eclipse plugins. If you want more of an IDE experience, there's um, Vim plugins. If you're a Vim user, there's, you know, Sublime Text and TextMate and um, other sort of more closure focused things like Nightcode and Lighttable. Um, so there are lots and lots of editors. And Atom actually has uh, really good support these days for sort of more web-based uh, editing workflow. Um, when you're in Clojure, you can use uh, JVM tools as well. So mm -hmm. people use tools like your kit to do um, performance and memory debugging or um, there are now good debuggers available in both Cursive and Emacs um, that you can use. Um, so, and then there are some more interesting tools that people have been starting to build out lately that really leverage a lot of Clojure's sort of unique strengths. Uh, things like ProtoREPL and Said. Um, so there's stuff, new things coming out all the time. It's hard to keep uh, yeah. keep on top of all of it. But uh, is there like um, support in the editors for like spec? Because I would think that finally, you know, before it was all dynamic, mm -hmm. we didn't know what was coming in, but now maybe we could. Uh, so uh, yeah. there's a new there's a new version <laughs> of functions. Cider, which is the mm -hmm. Emacs tooling for Closure that came out yesterday, um, which includes a vastly expanded support for spec and a spec mm -hmm. visualizer of some kind. I have not had a chance to actually even see it yet, but um, uh, that just came out. And uh, I know that uh, Colin is also working on some spec related features for cursive as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, that stuff is not actually out yet. And the spec is not actually part of a stable closure release yet. Mm -hmm. And so I think tool authors are waiting a little bit for uh, a little bit more finality on some of that <laughs> what, what like if, if someone's just getting started out with closure what um what editor tooling do you recommend usually um it it so i would say my first question is are you already have do you already have a programming editor that you like mm -hmm. um and if you do then you should probably use that one mm -hmm. <laughs> so that you're focusing on learning closure and not learning an, another tool to use closure with so i would not say go download emacs and learn emacs uh, to learn closure or something like that. That's, um, uh, I, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and you don't need Emacs to learn closure for sure. Um, you can, uh, when I first started using closure, I used TextMate and I didn't use any tooling of any kind. I used just a raw text editor and a REPL for, you mm -hmm. know, a few months, uh, until I felt comfortable that I understood what was happening. And then I dove into Emacs and, and did more of the Emacs at that point. You mentioned cider. Um, but, what, what is CIDR actually? So CIDR is a set of tooling um, that runs inside of Emacs. Mm -hmm. um, and it provides sort of integration with a REPL and debugging tools and, and uh, uh, code completion and all those sorts of things. And so all the things that you want in a modern sort of development environment. And uh, Cursive also provides um, all, most of those same things. So... Um, they provide them in a very different way. It's a very <laughs> a GUI way versus uh, Emacs. And uh, so there's um, different people tend to gravitate towards one or the other. I tend to use uh, cursive most of the time. That fits mm -hmm. my 
workflow. It's not quite as sort of uh, text, you know, command friendly. Um, you, you tend to do a little bit more, you know, pointing and clicking with the mouse and things like that. Um, that doesn't bother me. I find that allows me to sort of structure things a little bit better and, and really uh, in closure, I find it's not really about the typing as much. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's really about the thinking. Um, so uh, hopefully closure and your tools get out of your way as much as possible and just let you focus mm -hmm. on solving your problems. So, um, How long does it take for a new person um, to get familiar with closure? I think it, it really depends a lot on the background. Um, for me, like I did some scheme in, in college and when I picked up closure, um, uh, I was productive within a few days. Mm -hmm. Um, it, but for whatever reason, closure has a very natural match to my brain and the way that I think about things. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, 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 for me, it was just like, oh yeah, this makes total sense. And I totally understand how to do things. And so it was just a very natural match. But, um, in general, I think people, um, I think you can learn the basics within a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and closure is nicely sort of, um, made up of a bunch of independent things and you can sort of choose which parts of it to use. And you can defer learning about a lot of different topics for a long time. And mm -hmm. like uh, macros is something that Lisp is typically known for. Um, and uh, ma macros are the um, sort of uh, the ability of um, thinking about your source code itself as a data structure and then applying functions to um, take input data structures, which happen to be code, transform mm -hmm. them, produce output data structures, which also has to happen to be code. So macros are just functions that take code and return code uh, that happen to run sort of a little earlier in the process. Um, macros are sort of uh, often thought about as a tri tricky subject. And certainly there are a bunch of different uh, tricky things that come up in, in macros and, and they can get very, very complicated. Um, if they're sort of macros that generate macros and all sorts of crazy yeah. stuff. Um, <laughs> but when I learned closure, I actually did not write a macro probably for the first year that I wrote closure. Um, you don't need macros. You can do almost everything you want to do without macros or using existing things that happen to be written as macros. And so, uh, that's a good example of a topic that you can defer learning about for a really long time. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also defer learning about, you know, the software transactional memory parts of it or different concurrency aspects of it or uh, spec. All these things are sort of more a la carte where you mm -hmm. just pick which ones you want to use. And so the core things you need to really understand are how do I define, uh, vars or which really hold, uh, sort of, uh, functions and things like that. How do I define a function? How do I invoke a function? Mm -hmm. How do I use the core closure data structures? Um, those sorts of things, like I've taught a bunch of classes in closure and, mm -hmm. uh, we cover all of those things in the first day. So it's pretty easy to teach the, you know, the basics of closure within a few days, uh, and be able to, you know, write code that does things. So what would you, your advice, uh, if someone wants to get started? If you can find somebody to learn from, I think that's a, it's a great to have a resource, uh, for someone to, to ask somebody about. Um, there are a lot of good online communities to look at. There's a, an excellent closure Slack community, uh, which is very helpful and, and, uh, 
there's a beginner's room on there and uh, I answer questions there all the time and a lot of other people do too. And it's a very friendly, open place to ask. Um, there's also a good ARC, uh, IRC channel and people are on there all the time and mailing lists and Reddit and all mm -hmm. those things. Um, as far as uh, books go, there are a lot of different closure books. Um, some of the more recent ones that are really good sort of intro texts are Closure for the Brave and True. Uh, which is actually available as a free online book and also as a printed version from No Starch. Mm -hmm. um, and that one's by uh, Daniel Higginbotham. Um, a lot of people like Karen Meyer's Living Closure, which is uh, an O'Reilly book. Um, I'm actually working on the third edition of Programming Closure, which was actually the very first closure book. Uh, and actually the one I learned closure from, that's written by Stu Holloway, was originally written by Stu Holloway. And then the second edition was done by... Aaron Bedra and I'm working on the third edition and that's out in beta right now uh, from Pragmatic. Um, so, And you are, wrote a book. And I also have a book uh, <laughs> that I co-authored with Ben Van Grift um, called Closure Applied. And that's really intended to be a second book. And so it mm -hmm. doesn't cover syntax at all. It assumes that you've read one of these other books and that you've you know, spent some time working with Closure and it answers a lot of questions about things like, how do I structure my namespaces and how do I use state? How do I, if I have a concurrency problem, how do I approach that? What are the different tools available and which one should I choose? Um, and things like that. And so it's, it's meant to sort of act as sort of the, uh, a really good sort of journeyman book, you mm -hmm. know, sort of, uh, okay, I think I understand how the language works kind of, but how do I actually apply it to problems? And so that's uh, what it's trying to sort of, fill in the gaps on. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all my questions. No problem. Happy to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Always happy to talk about closure. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay.